This is the Journey 66 Book Writing Podcast. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are your road trip advisors. You may be at mile marker one and just thinking about an idea for a book, or maybe you've gone off-road in your writing and you want to restart the journey. Join Dave and me as we help you buckle up and write. How do I get published in the Wall Street Journal? It's a question asked by many who want to start at the top without putting in the work at the bottom. Getting quoted by a leading publication doesn't just happen. You have to work to establish yourself as an influencer that publications like the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times wants to interview. Today, we are speaking with Emily Bouchard, a leadership and legacy consultant who has published multiple books on topics related to her expertise in family dynamics specifically in helping people to have difficult conversations. Most recently, she co-authored and published Beginner's Guide to Purposeful Prenups, Three Essential Elements for a Successful Prenup Conversation. Emily says that writing books isn't as much about book sales as it is about building her thought leadership platform, which has led to multiple appearances in national media like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and Forbes. She's even made an appearance on the Today Show, what did all this exposure as a thought leader do for Emily? Well, today Emily's here to share her journey with us. Welcome, Emily. We're so glad to have you with us today. Well, thank you. I'm so glad to be here. So before we get started, Dave and I like to share where we've made progress in the week. So Dave, how about you go first? Where have you made progress? So I'm still enduring potty training with this puppy. It's only a week since I've had this same conversation on this episode or on this podcast. And uh, so I'm not sure we're making any progress, but my wife has gone this week and most of our kids are gone. And so it's just me and the dog. And uh, so I'm not getting a lot of sleep. But on another note, while my wife is gone, I'm also working on repairing one of the cabinets. We really need to redo the kitchen. It needs a lot of work. And one of the cabinet bottoms where the garbage is, is broken. And so instead of paying to have it repaired, I thought, you know, I could fix this. And then down the road, we'll eventually need to redo the kitchen. So last night I was saying nasty, nasty words <laughs> at about 1030 at night because I was so frustrated. I went to bed so frustrated because I put the rails. Anyway, I don't even go into it. But I, anyway, but I did make progress this morning. I got back up and in between taking the dog to the vet and a coaching call that we had, I fixed it. So uh, now I'm really happy. Dave, are you naturally a mechanically inclined person or is that not one of your strengths? I am somebody that can figure stuff out. Yeah, that's true. You go figure it out, right? YouTube. Yeah, exactly. So I, I can learn. I, I'm not, I wouldn't say naturally mechanically inclined, but I can figure stuff out anyway. Hey, so what about you? What about some progress for you? Well, I was on vacation for about a week and a half. And so I didn't exercise for about two weeks straight. Well, I take that back. We were in Colorado, so I did go on a few hikes, but I didn't run. And I didn't do, really do anything. And so yesterday, my running pal and I got back out on the trail and we are committing to sticking with a new exercising workout schedule. We may even try out Orange Theory, which has is this philosophy where you go between intense cardio and strength building and you're in this orange zone where you're supposedly burning more calories and yada, yada. I don't know. It's kind of expensive, but we're going to give it a try. So we made a call and made an appointment. So we'll see if that happens. I, we've only been talking about it for over a year. So I think it's progress that we actually have an appointment to try it out. That's huge progress. Yeah. Yeah. Starting I, something new like that is huge progress. It is. It's hard. And I, 
sticking with it will be even more difficult because I, I hear that these workouts kind of make you want to puke. They're so hard. So we'll see if I stick with it. <laughs> How about you, Emily? Have you made any progress this week? I did actually. Um, I learned about something that really shocked me in terms of the high suicide rate in a highly, highly affluent community. And huh. I, I knew that children that are born into families with that are very affluent and very successful parents and in these really affluent communities can be quite at risk. And there is some really good research that came out of Columbia University to really prove that. But when I found that out, I realized, wow, there's lives at stake. And I wanted to um, really dive in and start doing research around not only what are the underlying causes for that, but more importantly, how to shift that. And we all met at an incredible conference that happened last week, and we learned a lot about the positive psychology approach to life. And I wanted to really look at the how to bring really applicable, immediate tools and resources to people that could have maybe shift that tide. And I'm super passionate about doing what I can to maybe stop suffering where it's not necessary, where you don't mm. have to experience it. And it's such a a miss in terms of that population because they have the opportunity to do so much good in the world and for themselves if they can have a really healthy well-being internally. And so the progress I'm making and I made this week is I am looking into a PhD program because I want to do the research really impactfully and effectively. And it's something I've always wanted. My I come from a family of MDs and PhDs and it's the one thing that I haven't done. And I think that with COVID, there's been this sense of all right, what have I what have I put on the side that I'd love to do in this lifetime? And, and so I've been doing some research on PhD programs and I reached out to a friend of mine that was doing one that I thought she might have some recommendations and she did. And I researched it and I just registered for their last kind of orientation for the fall. So wow. um, there's a chance that I may be signing up for a PhD program at the end of this week. I don't know, but that that was exciting to have that discovery. And we had talked earlier before this started about my love of horses that I've just kindled during this time. And one of the things I want to do is bring in somatic approaches to health and well-being and create a program with horses to do that. So oh, that's uh, awesome. So we'll see if I can find a program that will support that endeavor. So. I love that. Well, your progress feels a whole lot more noble than my oh. progress feels. <laughs> noble and very ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so glad we got you on this podcast because if that PhD starts soon, we'll, we would never get you on the podcast. So this is perfect timing. Changed dramatically <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I feel like there could be another book down the road too. So that'll be exciting to watch for you mm -hmm. a few years from now. Well, Emily, can you tell our audience a little bit about your consulting business and how you got into it and what you do? I didn't know that this work existed. I'm a social worker. I have a master's in social work. I have a BA in child development. And I ended up, I did a personal transformation course uh, for eight days. And I met somebody at that course that ended up being impressed with how I showed up, I guess. And he um, referred me to a company back in 2004 because he knew that I had started a consulting practice and coaching practice for blended families, for step families, and have a really clear, like specific niche in terms of the complex dynamics that families that are, you know, blending two households, two sets of children, or maybe one person coming in that never had kids and is suddenly 
co-parenting kids that aren't theirs biologically, like all the different things that happen with that. And he referred me to a company that worked with families with 25 million or more in assets in terms of how to successfully transition their estates and their businesses to the next generation, the rising generation. And I don't know, after six months of kind of rigorous research and interviews, I ended up getting hired in 2004 to, to work with a family in October of that year. And I ended up being really effective at it because I came at it from a family perspective and a social work perspective, as opposed to a money perspective. So I never really look at people through the lens of money. And that's an unusual thing for the people that I work with to experience. And it's, it ends up being a wonderful way to easily build trust and bring them really good resources and tools. And so I worked for that company for about nine or 10 years. And then I ended up getting trained as a money coach through the Money Coaching Institute, because I kept hearing the same complaints, the same thoughts, the same dynamics over and over again, no matter what part of the country I was in, whether I was in Canada or the US. And I thought there's something going on in the human experience around money that I want to understand more. So I went and did that. And then I started working with a woman who had a company to be able to promote that work uh, because it was separate from the work I was doing at the consulting firm as a listening coach. And I ended up becoming managing partner of that firm. And I did that for eight years with her and it was long distance. She was in Israel and I was in the States. So that was a really uh, expansive time. And then in, three years ago, so was that in 2018, I was recruited to work at Ascent Private Capital Management, which is a multifamily office within U.S. Bank. And we work with families that have 75 million or more in assets. And I do the same work that I was doing all along, but within a large institution and with a really phenomenal national team, a PhD historian, a PhD psychologists, and wealth strategists that have um, legal degrees and expertise in tax and uh, CPAs that are really effective at like aggregate reporting when you have to report on all these different investments in all these different locations, and then philanthropic advising as well. And we uh, get to work with families all over the country, all over the world, really. And it's been a phenomenal experience for me. I never thought I'd work at corporate America, and I'm just thriving there. And the team's fantastic. And I'm still able to expand the thought leadership that I do, which is, you know, it's good for everybody. So that's why I'm here with you all, you know, to get the word out about what's possible. So important. What an incredible career you've had. It's really, really inspiring how you've adjusted along the way. Um, So tell me when you wrote your first book, what was happening in your life and maybe in in your consulting and that made you think, I need to write a book. And how did that play out for you? What were your expectations and what were your hopes when you wrote the book and why did you write it? I was was going through a major transition in my life. It was... um, 2011, I'd just gotten divorced. I'd moved to a new location. I'd joined a women's leadership group. And I actually, they had this kind of state, a big goal we wanted to accomplish. I said, I really want to write a book on blended family estate planning. I just see there's such mischief that gets created in these families because of the lack of understanding about how to go about it and do it well. I had no idea how to do it. I don't have a legal background, but I just kept seeing this pain point. And I thought, I really want to get a resource out there. And there wasn't much at all. I think I found like one other book about it. I didn't know how to get started. I started doing some research. I started doing some writing. And then I went to 
purposeful planning's rendezvous in 2011. And I met El Paul Hood Jr. We sat next to each other at a table and we went around the table and everybody shared who they were and what they did. And he told everybody that he was writing a book on blended family estate planning. And I was like, I want to write that book. And so we had this great like meeting of the minds. And it was interesting because, you know, you all understand this because you coach people in writing. All I wanted to do is be a support to Paul, right? I didn't know what I was going to do with the book, but um, I asked him like, where are you in your book? And what's a chapter you're struggling with? And so he told me and I said, well, why don't I read it? Why don't we do something together? And we actually did one of the webinars for purposeful planning on the topic of that chapter. And it really re-energized him in terms of the writing, because as you know, people can get, what did you, do? What did you call that? Uh, there's a word you used that I love that you said that one of the authors you're working with is in this, what did you say, David? It's a really dark know. space, like a dark tunnel with no light in sight. I don't know how, we, how else you describe it. <laughs> the dark tunnel part of it. Yeah. So Paul was having that with that chapter. And so I brought a bunch of light into it. I was curious. I was interested. And then what happened was, I brought the lay person's perspective, right? He's an attorney. He writes from that kind of the legal jargon. He's really knowledgeable, super intelligent. And I would, I just said, let me read your chapters. And so I just read the chapters and I would send him back a bunch of questions. And then I would give suggestions. Like what if there was an outtake box? What if we had action steps at the end? And the publisher was willing to bring me in because I had a platform and I had my blended family site that I started in 2003 as a way to get that book out into the world. And they said that I could co-author with him, even though he already had a contract and it was quite far into the process. And we had a blast and we spent six weeks deliberately. We would meet um, once a week. We would dive into it. And in between the meetings, we would work on different chapters. He would send me stuff. I'd send it back. We got really good at like tracking changes. (laughs) And then after we finished it, we sent it to the publisher. They had a copy editor work with us and help make sure that our two voices were blended really well together. You know, he just said that the book came out like way better than it would have had just been him. And it got really well received. And it was something that people could use for their clients. Attorneys could use with their clients really well. And then um, any lay person could pick it up and get really knowledgeable before they went to an attorney so that they were being efficient with their time and that they knew what they needed to be focusing on. So, that so was, was, that's all about empowerment of people. That's really why I get inspired to do it. That's what I was going to say. It sounds like you went into the book writing process, not because you wanted to be a New York Times bestseller or to make a lot of money or to say, hey, I've written a book, but because you really wanted to help people. You saw that there was a need and you had what it took to help them with those needs. Listening to your story, we talk about that passion, which is what I sense from you. And we just say, if you don't have the passion and this missional sense, deep missional sense about why you're doing it, go do something that's a lot easier. How did that book itself help you in your work And when did you actually start to get contacted by the New York Times? Did they come to you because it went out? How did that all work? Did you go to them? Did you have a PR agency? How did that piece work? Having the book was a wonderful way to be established as an individual consultant. So up until that time, I'd been working for that company as a consultant, and I was just starting. I was the managing partner of our firm, and I recognized that even though I had a lot of knowledge and a lot of experience and background, having a book 
was going to open doors. It was going to make it so there'd be another reason why people could find me. They could see that I know my stuff. It just been, brings a lot more credibility to your, you know, especially when you are putting out your shingle in an area that you're not as known in. Yeah. Because even though I was known within, you know, I did really good work with that company, but it was that company's name. It wasn't mine. Yeah. So that was really important for me. In 2003, I had launched a website. I met, I went to like a entrepreneurial boot camp. <laughs> one of the reasons I so enjoyed meeting you all and why I'm here is because of our, our joy of talking about how highly niched I am, like how I'm very specialized within a specialty field. Yeah. And I learned this at the boot camp. There was a marketing expert there. And he talked about how he had um, a toilet start overflowing spontaneously at like two in the morning. And at that time, all he had was a phone book and he leafed through to find a plumber. And then he saw this ad that said, just toilets. And he immediately called that plumber. That plumber came immediately. They took care of it. And he's like, look, I have to ask you, how can you just do toilets? And he goes, are you kidding? When I was just one of the plumbers, I never got calls, but being just toilets, look, you called me and all my trucks are stocked with just what I need for that. I had to grow exponentially because of it. And that's what he talked That was his example of niche marketing at its finest. And um, I knew I wanted to help people and I could give them all kinds of communication tools. And when I was starting and putting out a shingle for my coaching practice, I found out that being really highly niche was very important so that I could be found by the people that could benefit the most. And I just started with what I knew. I was a stepmom at the time. I was a stepdaughter, step-granddaughter. Like I just knew I was steeped in it. And I, you know, I had the training as a social worker and I just understood family dynamics really well. So I specialized in blended families. So I met somebody who helped me launch the website and he said, you need to research keywords. What are people that are doing that work? Or, or in that lifestyle, searching for online, this is just back in 2003, for resources. And I just gave him a huge list, step parenting, step families, co-parenting, coupling, co- you know, uncoupling. And, and I wrote blended families, blended family. And he looked at it. And at that time, people were searching for that phrase, but there was not a lot serving that phrase. So I made the name of my website, blended-families.com. That's what he recommended. That's what I did. So then what happened was Rudy Giuliani was running for president and his son would not endorse him. And the New York Times asked him, what's going on with your son? And he said, blended families are complicated. And New York Times said, what the heck is a blended family? They'd never heard the phrase before. So they looked it up and guess what? That keyword search had my website come up. So I'm like this brand new website that's online. I'm writing, I had a newsletter, we didn't have blogs then, but I had different topics on the site and the the guy I worked with understood what the, how you optimized at that time. So I got found for the blended family search and we ended up having like a two page section in the style section of the Sunday New York times. And I had, I had a couple of clients and they were willing to be interviewed and they got featured and, and it put me on the map. So, you know, the thing I would say is be super crystal clear about your particular niche and get it on the net so that you're found for that niche. And then be timely, like knowing that if you're aware of the news, I got in the Wall Street Journal because a client was working with me and she said, hey, are you going to write something about um, James Gandolfini and the fact that his estate plan is all over the news right now? And I was like, I had no idea. And this is that actor from the Sopranos. And 
he died really suddenly of a heart attack and he had two families. He had his first marriage, his former wife had a 14 year old son with him. And then he had a new wife and he had like a nine month old baby girl. His estate was not all in trust. So because of it was in the will, the it that's public knowledge. So anybody who's listening, if you don't want people to know your business, don't have a will. You may have a will, but have it be a pour over that goes into trusts because trusts are private, wills are public. And, and also you have to go to probate with a will. There's a legal mess that happens with that. So definitely have trust. If you if, take nothing away from this, that's important. But he set up his estate in such a way that the two children were co-owners of an estate he bought in Italy and nothing could be done and it couldn't be sold until the youngest was 25 years old. So of course he had no idea he was going to die. He wanted this to be a family thing that they would all go to, that they could bond at. He had a whole vision for it, but he wasn't there to fulfill it. And they had not yet. They just knew the plan. There was no like letter of intent with it or anything like that. So I immediately researched how to write a press release, how to do a press kit. I hadn't done that before. I did not have a PR agency. I had a friend who was a former reporter and I reached out to her and I said, what do I do? And she told me, oh, this is what you need. She told me exactly what I needed to do. And then I had, um, when I first started as a managing uh, partner, I had reached out to every possible publication I could think of to start to get connected with the report, key reporters that were on those different um, beats that would be interested in family dynamics, family law, family uh, inheritors, whatever it might be. And I just, I reached out to anybody and everybody I could. I took a lot of action towards that. And I wrote different articles or different PR pieces. I read how to do that, but I didn't know what I was doing. I just, I just went for it and just went, researched online, you know, women in wealth, women inheritors, family dynamics, family transitions, family succession planning, whatever it might be, who was writing articles about that. And then I just reached out to them. And then as I was doing that, we got contacted, my, my firm that I was a managing partner of, by the Wall Street Journal. And they were doing an article series on wealth psychology. And we became really good friends with the reporter. She came and did our process. We got to know her really well. And that article that she researched got shelved. It didn't get published when it was supposed to because of something that changed at the Wall Street Journal. I'm sure you've never heard of that before. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Never. Oh my gosh. And so I stayed in touch with her. I stayed connected with her. She changed different roles at the Wall Street Journal. And so when this happened with James Gandolfini, um, I put together the press kit really quickly. I sent it to her and I said, who do you know at the Wall Street Journal that would find this most timely and useful? Because it is, it, this is a time sensitive piece. And she knew exactly who it was. It was Kelly Green. She sent it to her. So she gave me the warm introduction and Kelly basically used everything I wrote. She added a couple of things, researched it a little bit, but um, used the, the PR piece that I'd written, the press release I'd written. And that got me in the Wall Street Journal the first time. And then I've been in multiple times since that, that just to say you can be very creative and it's just about being so niched and so clear about your topic that and having the connections, the right people to send it to. So cultivating those relationships is key. You have a tenacity that I think a lot of people don't possess or they underestimate they have deep within them. And you just went after it. I don't know how to write a press release. Let me do some research and figure it out. Let me figure out how to make connections with these reporters who couldn't really care less about who I am. But your persistence and tenacity, I think, are such 
a great example for our listeners. So thank you for sharing that. I became friends with the reporter from the New York Times way back from that first one. And even though they left the New York Times and they went other places, I still stay connected and say, you know, how are you? Where are you? What are you up to? Like just keeping that relationship, you have no idea who they can connect you with. Just love your story of, well, I didn't know how to do it. So I, I Googled on how to do it. And then I asked somebody and then I did this and, and that's how it happens. I, I am really, really uh, impressed with that because that is how you write. That's how you publish that's how you get quoted in the New York Times. The one thing I want to turn to, because I don't want to lose this, and I think it parallels with what you're doing, what you did before, but you, we were, you and I were talking just briefly about Clubhouse, which is the new app. So I feel like you're doing with Clubhouse what you were doing with this other stuff. Hey, I don't know a lot about it, so I'm going to dig in and find out. So maybe you can tell our listeners what is Clubhouse and how did you try it and how does it working for you and, and, and what we should know about it? Well, and it's a perfect segue to what I was just talking about. Um, so Clubhouse is a new app. And what's great about you asking me about this right now on this date is they just opened it up to the entire world. So before it was a beta test, it's still in beta. It was just for um, iPhone users and you had to get an invitation. Then they expanded it out to Android and you had to get an invitation. Now, anybody can sign up and be on it. So it's perfect timing for anybody who's writing a book. Um, and I love your process. I learned so much from you all in terms of how, as you're writing your book, you need to be cultivating your readership and your followers so that when you publish the book, you have people that are really ready and wanting to buy the book yeah. and getting the word out about it. And so Clubhouse is a great place to do that because Basically, what it is, is it's like a podcasting format, but where you get to interact with your audience. Anybody can open up a room and you can invite people to it. And then you can, you know, it could be the three of us having this conversation on stage. Everybody sees a circle with our face on it. They don't see it. They, there's no video. It's only audio. But they would hear this conversation and then they can raise their hands and we can bring them up on stage and they could ask questions of us. And you develop a di direct relationship with your audience and people um, offer tremendous value. And then um, if you want to interact with each other, they have a back channel that you can interact on the app, but that's more just like in the midst of the room. But if you want to connect, they have it connected to, they want you to have a LinkedIn or Twitter or um, Instagram is the big one that they use um, messaging. So you People will say, slide into my DMs, which means go to Instagram and send me a direct message. Wow. And I wasn't even on Instagram when I got onto Clubhouse. And now I have, I don't, I don't know, I probably have like 600 followers on it now. And Clubhouse, I have about, I don't know, almost 800 followers. And I just, I've done a couple of rooms on prenups because I'm really passionate about helping people have that conversation. And I've been invited up into some other rooms that people have had about prenups and then I go on to like rooms for stepmoms and bring value and support them. But um, basically there's a, there's a club. So when you go into clubhouse, they, there's definitely rooms that you want to go into about how to use the app. Right. And they have all kinds of great information online about it, but you want to get familiar with the different phrases and terms they use. So the hallway is where you see which different clubs are hosting rooms and you follow different clubs that you really like the topic of. 
So like for you all, there would be, I'm, I'm sure there's clubs for book writing or authors or yeah. um, aspiring authors, whatever it might be. And you just, you can search. There's a keyword search and you can find people that are author coaches or aspiring author. And you can look at what clubs serve that or audience. So for me, I did searches for wedding and uh, dating, did searches for prenups, and I did searches for blended family and step families. And then I just started looking at what clubs and how many people were involved in them and who were the people that were leading them. And you can, you just get to know them and there's people have bios and you get to see who they are and what they've been doing and why you would want to know, listen to them. And you can also go to their Instagrams and see what they post there. And you kind of curate who you follow because whoever you follow, the app's algorithm is going to send you rooms that they're doing. I'm very eclectic. So I get rooms on all kinds of topics like quantum physics and um, health and wellness and travel. And like, I'm, I just love it. It's really fascinating. And then there's a club called Clubhouse Mastermind and it's been phenomenal. They have a room every morning at 7 a.m. Pacific time. And they, it's all about how to maximize using Clubhouse. And I've learned so much from them about how to be effective and how to develop really good relationships with people and how to be successful on the app. And what I'll say in terms of the segue is there are rooms where they do pitches, where you can pitch to major media outlets, people that own television stations, and they're looking for new TV shows. And then you get to see who are the people that are the moderators. And they're like people that have all kinds of background in media. And some of them are coaches in terms of media. Some of them are all about PR. But there are people that I've met, like Forbes authors and New York Times reporters and uh, reporters in my area, that uh, Wall Street Journal. And I follow them. I follow them on Twitter. And then I let them know things I heard them say that I really liked. And I'm cultivating relationships with them. So it's, it's not, it doesn't have to be hard. It can be quite fun. And then um, I would just say, create like a spreadsheet where you track who are the people you really want to be connecting with on a regular basis and getting into their rooms and following them and showing up not as a stalker, but as a fan and as somebody who really pays attention and learns from them. That's been a really wonderful thing there. And there's, there's rooms on any possible topic you can imagine. I think the principles that you're talking about now are just elemental to any sort of social media engagement and growing your following. It's about engaging in a really positive and meaningful and helpful way. And so I I love that you brought those principles to the table that what can you give to other people? What can you bring that's, that's helpful? And just being really strategic about who you connect with and finding your tribe and really tracking that and being intentional. I I love that advice. It's really, really great. Yeah. Like I was in a room this morning that that clubhouse mastermind, it was all about building relationships on the app. And there was a woman in the room that was asking questions. And I went and looked at her bio and her whole work is centered around burnout recovery. And so I messaged her. I said, have you ever thought of doing a room on stepmom burnout? and recovery from that. And she said, Oh my God, what a great topic. And so we're in caught dialogue about creating a room for, for stepmoms. So like, that's another thing that can happen really organically and collaborations. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me based on your experience, I don't know if you've ever done any Facebook lives, but what is unique about clubhouses that Facebook live doesn't have? I know Facebook live is, it has a video component, but 
you can't, the people that are, they, they can message you, like they can type their responses, but on Clubhouse, people can come up on stage and speak. So you, it's all voice. You get to hear each other. Awesome. Yeah. So it is more community building. So do you have any more pre- or clubhouses on the horizon besides the burnout with stepmoms? No, I mean, I just, I, I'm finding it fascinating and really fun. I mean, I'm, I'm really focused on like expanding out in terms of my philanthropic advising at Ascent and I work with the families there and um, with the teams. So, you know, I'm not, I'm just thinking, I wanted to come here and support you all with what you're doing for authors because I think it's so amazing. And I have a children's book that I wrote and another one that I'm wanting to get out there. And so I'm just starting to dabble in fiction too. So that's been really fun. So I'm, I'm looking at connecting with parents and getting their feedback about some of the books. So that's, I think that's probably my personal project with it. And then I think the, the other thing is just continuing to cultivate the media contact. Yeah, that's great how you can use oh. that as a way to kind of tap into the media. That That's such great advice. So helpful for our audience. I have loved everything that you've said today. I, this has been so unique in content, so unique to what we've ever covered before because just your tenacity, I think, is such an example and figuring things out and not being afraid to try new things and doing the hard work of creating a spreadsheet of who you want to be more engaged with on, on Clubhouse. I really, I, I love everything about this interview and just what an example you are that it can be done. If you're, if you're, you're an author, a thought leader, you can build from, from scratch like you did. So I'll just say that for me, like learning how to use a spreadsheet or use whatever methodology you like for capturing stuff, but it makes it so it's not hard work, right? You can, you can make it so it's really easy for you. People, I mean, whatever works for you. Some people use Slack or Trello or I don't, I mean, whatever notes, it doesn't matter, but it's more like just making it so that like you have kind of a cultivating, nurturing that garden of um, possibilities every day, right? Like send out hundreds of things every single day. It was like, oh, I'm going to do three today and three tomorrow and, you know, see what ends up happening. Uh, yeah. So you, you can make it easy. You can make it fun. And I love the serendipities that happen. Like when you move forward to towards a goal you have, I mean, I hope that's what people take away from this is serendipitous things happen in ways you can't even imagine because of your commitment towards it. And the only thing that stops you is you're not taking the action um, and you don't know what, which actions are going to yield what results, but it's more, you know, just making it, um, what would you say? Like uh, the commitment, like you show up with that strong commitment towards it. I think that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much for sharing your experience and wisdom. We are looking forward to following you and your success with your, your children's books. I, I have no, I have no doubt that they will be successful. Thank you. Thanks so much. Before we sign off, though, and close out this episode, Dave and I want to share our words of the episode. And Dave, I'll go first. And this is a word that is simple and I've heard before, but I don't think I've ever used it correctly in a sentence. That Those are the kind of words I'm drawn to lately because I want to be able to use words correctly. There's nothing worse when you use the word incorrectly. So my word is parry, P-A-R-R-Y, to ward off or evade. It's also a fencing term, which means to avert. So here it is in context. I made up a silly little sentence. Though her social media post indicated she was making a big move, she parried the rumors by posting a happy picture in her hometown. So she warded off or evaded the rumors. How about you, Dave? What's your word of the episode? I love it. And here's why I love it, Melissa. 
is because I I've heard of the word before. So many of these words that you uh, <laughs> you you post, I'm like, man, I feel stupid today. I I couldn't. Be, I didn't. I've not heard the word. I've never. I mean, but anyway. So Perry, I have heard. And have you uh, used it before, Dave? I have. I have used it. I probably have used it in writing as well. But yeah, it's one of those words that I think I just. It's a short word to you know two syllables and. It has just a really great meaning and it, you know, it's better than evade, right. Or to than, avert. Right. Avert to, is such a clunky word. It's such yeah. a clunky word to parry. It's just, I don't know. It's, it's it a wonderful word too, right? I it mean, is. It yes. Saying, I guess it is sophisticated. <laughs> yeah. Great word. So mine is to auger. I grew up in rural North and South Dakota and where you would take an auger and you would drill down in, and build and put these big fat fence posts down. So you would use an auger or an ice auger. But the word actually means of an event or circumstance to portend a good or bad outcome. So a way that you would use it might be her absence from his birthday party augured a future without her. Or what about Simone Biles? withdrawing herself from the group gymnastics competition. Is that an auger of the the gold medals not to come? <laughs> yes, that's a great way to use it. Perfect. All that's right. perfect. Great. That's a much better sentence than the one I came up with. Well, that's I fabulous. I, I was just reading a story before we got on the podcast about it. I'm like, oh my gosh. I mean, I applaud her in many ways, but what does this mean? She's the superstar. So, well, I think that those two words round out our episode, but before we sign off and for this episode, we want to invite you to take our quiz on our website, and it will help you identify where you're at on the book writing journey. Dave, where can they go to find this and what will they find out by taking the quiz? So just jump on journey66.com. And the way we've spelled journey 66 is journey and then 60 written out and then with the six.com. But on the navigational bar at the top is just take our quiz. It's the best way to like dip your toe into what we do. We help writers in all stages of development. Everybody who would love to write a book, but you know, is just fearful of that, but wants to start thinking about that to people who are already on the journey and are stuck. Often people get stuck once they start to write, they lose kind of their way with structure. You'll find out where you are. Again, I wanted to thank you, Emily, for being with us. And we'll have you back soon, I hope, and glean more from your experiences. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. All right. That's a wrap, Dave. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write. <laughs> <laughs>